There's two readings this morning, so if you've got your fingers all ready to be poised if you use the church Bible. The first reading is from Isaiah, and that's on page 709 of the church Bibles. It's Isaiah chapter 25, that's page 709. And the second reading, (coughs) excuse me, is from Luke, Luke chapter 15, and the page is 1049, 1049. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms round him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, we've been looking at this parable for the last few weeks, haven't we? The sermon series called, uh, surprisingly called The Prodigal God. And I've alluded to the fact that the man who uh, devised this series, who uh, wrote it, um, obviously based on the parable, is uh, a pastor from America called Tim Keller. And uh, today I thought a good way of rounding off the series uh, was to watch the DVD film that goes along with the, the studies. And it's, uh, the, the video is of Tim Keller actually teaching uh, about the parable, uh, the parable of the, uh, the lost son or the lost sons. Uh, he, he's a, uh, you'll have to make your own impressions as to what you think of him, but I think he's a really good teacher and preacher. And I think it will be a way of reminding, being reminded of the, the sort of main uh, teaching points that have come through this series from the last few weeks uh, in the sermons, in my sermons. And uh, particularly to do with today, the theme being the Feast of the Father, he uh, focuses towards the end of the talk on this idea of the banquet of the, the Feast of the Father, as Isaiah 25 refers to. 
And uh, and he says that the parable is is an invitation into this party, an invitation into the the feast, uh, the banquet of heaven uh, that Jesus talks about, uh, and that Father God is our host. Uh, So we'll watch the film. Uh, It's 20 minutes, and uh, then I just suggest that perhaps, John, at the end of the film, we just have a moment of quiet and then uh, lead us on from there. So let's see. I have got a sermon. If we all, I said, if all as far as I can preach myself, so it's not the end of the world. They said to me in training college, "It's all else fails, you've got to have a script. So <laughs> it's a shame because that, it is a good film. Uh, it's easy at the 10th service. So I'm going to show the whole lot. So if you want to stay behind and watch it, uh, I'll be at the second service, then please do. But um, it's a shame. But uh, sometimes technology doesn't work, does it? Never mind. Okay, well, as I said, we're looking at the, uh, the Feast of the Father, particularly in, uh, in this story, and... Um, and uh, we've been thinking a little bit about how this fits into the context of the Bible uh, and uh, exile and homecoming. In the Bible, the theme of exile and homecoming is one of the biggest themes of all uh, in the scriptures. And so let's just think about three things in that bigger perspective. Firstly, the human condition. Secondly, the divine solution. And thirdly, the new communion. So I'll reread, reread verses 13 to 17. The human condition. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. So in that uh, passage, it's not the younger brother's sin that sends him away. It's, it's not his sin that sends him into exile. So it was his sin that sends him into exile from his father's home. He's disgraced his father's name, his family's name, and the entire community would have been outraged with him. He would have wished his father dead, taken his money and gone away from home, which is what he did. And when he did that, when he took his father's money and wished his father dead, what he does is he becomes a symbol of the human race. Because the truth is, we were made for the Garden of Eden. Our true home is in the presence of God, but we've lost that home. And so, like the younger son, we're all exiles. We're all away from our true home. Let's think about that for a moment. I wonder what you think about when you think of home. What sort of pictures or images come into your mind? Is it a hearty meal? Is it being gathered around the fire? Is it maybe watching a film together? 
all of those things. You know that song, Home on the Range? Oh, give me a home where the buffaloes roam and the deer and the antelope play. So that word home may conjure up all sorts of images in your mind. But essentially, home is where we fit. It's where we really fit. It's where we can be ourselves. We can be who we really are, where we feel, hopefully, where we feel comfortable and safe. Our true home, as I said, is found in God's presence because we were made to know God and to love God and to find our lasting fulfillment in serving and worshipping him. But something has gone wrong, hasn't it, in the whole scheme of things? And the Bible says that the thing that's gone wrong is that we've made ourselves king of our lives. Instead of making God the king, we've made ourselves king. We want to be our own savior, we want to be our own lord. And therefore, the Bible says we become wanderers in the universe. And so we, we don't feel like we fit anywhere anymore. I wonder if you ever relate to that feeling of being a wanderer. It's that pervasive sense of, of a sort of an inner longing, an inner belonging is somewhere else. I want to appeal to an unlikely source here, but uh, you may have heard of him. He's a German man. He's a German philosopher called Martin Heidegger. Anybody ever heard of Martin Heidegger? John has probably. Uh, other theologians amongst you might have done. Uh, he's an unlikely source to back up in a sermon as he was a supporter of Nazism and, and Adolf Hitler in pre-war Germany. But Heidegger came up with an idea which I find hard to pronounce because I, I don't speak German. It's something like Unheimlichkeit. Unheimlichkeit. Which trans, translated means an eeriness or uncanniness. Or more simply, homelessness. To quote him, Heidegger, he says, it is an inescapable feature of the human condition, a shadow over our being. Now Heidegger, you might not be surprised to know, who is a humanist humanist philosopher, but he picked up something about what it's like to be human, the human condition that finds echoes in the Bible, this state of being in exile or away from home, spiritually lost. And everybody in the human race is a wanderer far from home in in the sense that uh, the world doesn't fit their deepest needs. And it's difficult to translate that unheimlichkeit word, but it's along the lines of homelessness. It's that sort of yearning for something else or somewhere else. That country that we know is there, but we're we're not there yet. If you've ever lived in a foreign country, uh, you'll know what that's like. As you know, for a few years, uh, uh, Debbie and I and the girls lived in Australia, and there were times when it really did feel foreign. We did feel foreign because there were times when we were just simply foreign. We were not part of that culture. And if you've ever been in that situation, you'll know what that's like. It's a sort of longing for the familiar, longing for what you know. And so when the younger brother comes to his senses, he realizes that he needs to go home. But how is he to do that? How is he to do that? Because he's an outcast. He's been, he's, in a sense, he's sent himself out. He's rejected his family. So why would they have him back? Even so, he goes home. And as he goes home, he finds out the divine solution. We hear about the divine solution to that pervading sense of homelessness that we have as humanity. 
So the divine solution we find in verses 31 and 32. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The centerpiece of this great parable is a feast. The father throws a feast and we're told it is an expensive feast. It's music and dancing. The most expensive of meats. All to honor this son who's come home. Who's now found. The father says we had to celebrate and be glad. There's no choice. We had to. And so why is this feast so central, so important in this story? Well, as you'd have heard Tim saying, if we'd have watched the film, uh, the meals in the Old Testament are very, very important occasions. Meals are where covenants are ratified, where victories are celebrated, and uh, family occasions are marked by meals. Might be births or weddings or funerals and so on. And a feast was established to celebrate the greatest event in the salvation history of God's people to that time. The Passover meal. And that's why you get the Pesach, the Jewish celebration of Passover. To celebrate and remember the liberation of God's people from slavery in Egypt. But why were meals so important? Well, in ancient times, meals went on a long time. It could go on and on right into the evening, sometimes right uh, into the night time. Partly because there's little else to do. Didn't have electric light in those days uh, when the sun went down and you'd been working in the fields all day. So an evening meal became a way of, 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 of sort of spending time together. It became the centerpiece of family life. But you don't need to be a first century person to know this, do you? In your own home, I'm sure a meal time is a, a time of nourishment, a time of of togetherness, a time of laughter, a time of, uh, of pleasure, of friendship. And that's why hospitality is so important. It's a time to get to know each other, to know what's going on in our lives, each other's lives. And so if you ever have a family reunion or a, a family get-together, a meal is normally the centerpiece of that get-together, I'm sure. It's where we hear about maybe what's, what's going well and what's not going so well in our lives. It's a time when we can feel at home. What's more, the feast of the Father here has an even deeper meaning to it. It means that one day God will bring us home. One day God will bring us home. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 8, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. As we were thinking about last week, our true elder brother, because of our true elder brother who is Jesus, God will someday make this world home again. He's going to wipe away death. He's going to wipe away suffering and tears and will give us bodies that that run and are never weary. And then we have that remarkable teaching of Isaiah, chapter 25, that we heard read, which speaks of the hope we have in our Lord Jesus when he returns and all things are fulfilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. 
On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And when we get to that great feast of the renewing of all things, we'll say something like what Jewel the Unicorn says at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. He says, I've come home at last. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it. The younger brother didn't expect to be brought back into the family. He didn't expect a party. He didn't expect a celebration because he'd sinned. But this is what he gets. And yet the elder brother objects. Why? Well, the reason is because meals show acceptance. They show relationship. And the religious leaders at the time forbid believers from eating with sinners. To eat with someone was to receive them virtually as family. So how could you do that for someone who had rejected God? Besides that, didn't everyone know that you become like the people you love and spend the most time with? And so they reason if you spend time with sinners, you will become like them. And also, I'm sure you know that the, the uh, Jewish dietary laws are extremely elaborate. Uh, it was a way of, of, of stopping uh, the Jews becoming polluted by the pagans around them. That's why the laws are so elaborate and so intricate. And in fact, during the intertent, uh, between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but leading up to the day of Jesus, those uh, uh, ritual laws became even more intricate as Judea became under occupation of one empire after another. And so meals became boundary markers. This is what made them different to those around them. And yet Jesus shatters that practice, as we see in Luke chapter 15, verse 2. He eats with them. He spends time with the marginalized, with the wicked. And that's why there's all this grumbling going on, you see, this muttering. How can he do that? This man welcomes sinners and eats of them. How can sinners be included in the feast? And so what Jesus is doing is to enact in person and in person and to tell in three parables a new and world-changing truth that God is bringing in a new community, a new family which is to be symbolized by a communal feast, a holy meal of the people of God which is where we get to the third and final point, the new communion. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. This parable is all about Jesus. Now, if you want to write down some references, uh, you don't need to turn them up now, but you may want to look at them later. Uh, a few references for you. Jesus leaves his own true home. We find that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. You know that wonderful uh, hymn of praise that uh, Paul writes of in Philippians, of who Jesus is, who leaves his home, comes to earth, is rejected, crucified, and yet risen to life. He wanders without a home. That's Matthew chapter 8, 
verse 20. And it's finally crucified outside the gate of Jerusalem, which is in itself a sign of exile and rejection. Hebrews 13, verses 11 and 12. Jesus experiences the exile that we deserve, that the human race deserves. He's alienated, he's cast out, so that we can come home. On the cross, Jesus loses fellowship with the Father. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is forsaken and cast out of the family so that we can be brought in. And as you can see in the parable itself, Jesus calls the younger brothers to repent. He doesn't only eat with them for the sake of inclusiveness or just to defy convention. Rather, he calls them to change. And he gives us that foretaste of the great feast in what we call the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion. And so when we gather around the communion table, we don't have to be perfect, we just have to be repentant. Think of it like this. The ultimate son who was dead and cut off is now alive again. So we have to celebrate. And the way we celebrate what he's done for us is to create a new community of forgiven sinners in which anyone can be a part. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what your race is or your class or your background. Any repentant sinner can come and be a brother and a sister because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, our true other brother. The one who took our exile and punishment upon himself. The death and resurrection of the Son and the love of the Father create a new community of men and women and children who regularly break bread together to celebrate the new life and the common union they have through Jesus. It's not just enough to be in personal relationship with Jesus. We've got to be in relationship with each other, the family of God. That is where we become like him, in the image of the one who did it all for us. So in a few moments we're going to do that, and John will lead us into that part of the service where we will celebrate at the Feast of the Lamb. A symbol of that, a reminder of that, as a celebration that Jesus is the one who has brought us home. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for this story. Thank you, Jesus for your telling of this story. All those years ago, we have this story recorded for us so that we can read it and reread it and let it speak to us into our lives again and again. Thank you, Lord, that you've done it all for us. There's nothing that we need to do. There's nothing we can do to come into the feast of the Father. You welcome us with open arms. You welcome the sinner. You welcome us around the table of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate and be glad that you welcome us into your party. In Jesus' name, amen.